Hey, one quick thing before we get started. I just want to remind you that this podcast is for information, education, and entertainment. It is not a substitute for therapy or therapeutic intervention. If you find yourself in crisis, please visit your local emergency room or contact a crisis hotline. Today on the LOL Pod, I am joined by my guest, Brad Wise, and we talk about the transformative power of storytelling. Let's jump in. Hey everyone, it's LaShonda from Labors of Love, and you are listening to the Labors of Love podcast. Very excited to talk with my guest today. He is the executive director of Bespoken Live, Brad Wise. Hi, Brad. How you doing? Thanks for having me on. This is great. Uh, Yes. Welcome. Welcome. So I'm going to start with you like I do all of my guests and ask, what is your labor of love? Hmm. Yeah, great question. Um, I think if I had to boil it down, you know, I'm a, I'm a creative. Uh, I, my day job is I work for a creative agency. We do storytelling, video, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then the my passion project is the the nonprofit, the Spoken Live that you mentioned, and that's also storytelling. We use sort of storytelling and story listening um, gatherings and experiences to spark, you know, contagious hope, belonging. Um, getting to know yourself by knowing your story and knowing yourself by knowing other people's stories. And we, do, we have a director who does that at schools. And so it's for adults and, and kids. But if I had to boil down everything, um, I think my labor of love ultimately is just making stuff, <laughs> making stuff with my friends. Um, I think almost maybe experiencing belonging through the act of making things. Um, if I look over the course of my life, I think that's what I'm drawn to. And when I have professional time and free time, you know, I just find myself making things. And so there's a bunch of stuff I can talk about that, but like under Bespoken Live, um, we released a podcast series called uh, The Boon Reflections, B-O-O-N Reflections. Um, And it was all about walking people through the, the process of making something. So if you have an idea and you want to make it happen, that's about my favorite thing in the world is when people want to bring their idea to life. And I've done it enough that I know that there's a pattern and a stage and a process to what that looks like. And so it's this eight part series where I kind of walk people through all of the stages of, of what bringing an idea to life, uh, what you can expect and um, release that, that series. And it's been interesting to see how people respond to it you know we've had people who they quit their jobs and they pursue their passion projects because of this thing and um, helps people just kind of fine-tune what they're trying to figure out so yeah labor of love to answer your simple question in a long rambly way uh, i think it's just making stuff i love it and you're right there are so many directions that i'm excited for us to go in with this but before we maybe talk about uh, things you are creating and have created and get into that. Tell us a little bit about where you think this is rooted. So, you know, Brad creates things and he brings them from idea to fruition. Where did that start for you? Hmm. That's a good question. I think early on um, I got, affirmation and got celebrated by my parents for being creative. And one story that like comes to mind was probably, I don't know, eight or nine years old. And I remember being, I must've watched like a Mr. Wizard or some, one of those shows on TV. And I wanted to like conduct my own experience. So I grabbed like all of my mom's um, Tupperware and, you know, different containers. And then just stuff from the kitchen, like flour, food coloring, all kinds of different things, and just made a gigantic mess running, you know, science experiments or who knows what, just playing and having fun. Um, And I remember my mom, instead of coming out and saying like, what are you doing? Like, you're making a gigantic mess. I'm going to have to clean this up. It was the, the exact opposite. Like she made me feel like I was 
she told me how creative I was and how I don't remember the specific words. Honestly, I just remember feeling like this is a really, my mom's making me feel like what I'm doing right now is really good. Um, and I really think that was a foundational story for me because I spent from then on, I've just never, I've never been afraid of messing up or making a mess or just that creative process of like experimentation has been a part of my story from the time I was super young um, and still is to this day. That is huge. So in the story about the stuff in the kitchen, around how old were you? I think I was eight or nine. Eight or nine. Like, I have to pause here because uh, you think it's foundational. Yes, like that sets the trajectory for your life, whether you went on to create or not, that experience um, can be so pivotal because what you learned in that moment is I can follow my whimsy. I can follow my intuition. I can, I can go and do these things. And it didn't require a lot of permission getting, mm-hmm. right? You didn't have to go and lay out your plan for your parents and get there okay. You were able to kind of just think a thing and launch into it. And then you just start doing this stuff. And then her response to you was like, whoa, well done, despite outcome, right? So what I didn't hear in the story is that you had this specific thing in mind that you executed. And then when you completed it, you got recognition for the accomplishment. You got recognition for just being Brad. And that is huge. And, you know, I even think of myself, like I can talk about this all day, but if I come home and my three kids are in my kitchen with some flour and all of my, my, my plastic containers and some food coloring, <laughs> you know, I don't know that my response is going to be like, whoa, you're super creative. But I appreciate that story because it makes me remember that I'm laying a foundation for my children as well, not just for what they accomplish, succeed and finish but the fact that they are that you were able to learn to just follow Brad I think is huge kudos to your mom yeah I love that language I've never I honestly haven't thought about it too much but yeah she didn't it wasn't until she didn't wait to affirm me for something I made because I didn't really accomplish anything in that moment um and I think through my life like the finished product is never really what gives me like the real satisfaction, right? It's in the, it's in the process. It's in making it, you know, even we did a, over quarantine, some friends and I, we started just hanging out on Zoom, like everybody was doing just to like connect, you know, cause it was so weird to be limited to connection, you know what I mean? And so some old friends, we got together and sort of just accidentally invented invented this game that we did a kickstarter thing for um in the fall called good versus good where you just celebrate the good things in life and i love the finished product like i'm really proud of it and i love that people play with it but it was the the making it with my friends and laughing that's that's my favorite part that's that's my labor of love that is so awesome now as a person who does not like processes Um, as a person who does not like the journey and is just get me to the destination and who has spent most of her life terrified of making mistakes. This is also very intriguing (laughs) to me. Like, wow. So what I appreciate just for me is just hearing that there is joy and fulfillment in the process in the making of and not just the conclusion. And I'm really drawn to this you know, again, going back to this very foundational story for you as a child that this led to in this, yes, this one event, but it sounds like, like your mother's way of being a mom, your parents' way of being parents just kind of helped you never really be afraid to get messy, make a mess, knowing that it's, you can clean it up. Right. I can remember being a kid, maybe close to around the age you were, maybe a little older And I literally accidentally spilled some milk. I remember my dad like 
losing it and, and not losing you know you would have to know him to know that like he was he was a man of very few words and and things like that he didn't get aggressive but he definitely was upset and I I remember at some point recent to my history at the time I had heard the the term don't cry over spilled milk yeah. <laughs> and I just remember being like but wait <laughs> he's definitely mad about this spilled milk and and, you know, I've told this story before too, you know, if I came home with a report card that was all A's and one B, you know, the first thing he would say, not angry, not upset, not even really disappointed. But the first thing he would say is, okay, how do we get this B to an A? And I can understand with my, my lens now that he really was doing the best he could. He was very undereducated. Like I say, black man born in 1939 in South Carolina. Um, great migration up to the big three in Detroit, like education was very important for him, for me, but I carried the weight of perfectionism because of how he engaged with me over many things. And so just to hear your story, the first thing my body responded to was like freedom, mm. like a, a liberty of existing in a way that maybe didn't feel as constricted, confined, and scary as mine. You may not have thought about it because it was your life, but when you hear me say that, like what comes up for you in regards to kind of liberty, freedom, expansion that you've had in your life? I mean, yeah, I haven't I haven't thought of it through that lens, but but that combined with what you said a little bit earlier of um, not needing to ask for permission, I definitely think the freedom to just go make it has been this has been my story um when i was you know sixth or seventh grade we had to write a report like a paper for like the research project we were doing and so i just made mine i made a video of it like i grabbed a video camera it was on steroids and so i dressed up as all you know these different characters that were like doing steroids and made this like funny but educational video as my report and just turned it in instead of writing it. And I remember the, the teacher, you know, praising me for being creative. And like, once that happened, I was just like, oh, well, any chance I get in school where I don't have to like write, write the words down. Cause I think most, most high schoolers like to avoid that kind of work. I would just make a video. I would just like bring the storytelling stuff and it was always I always like added goofy metaphor stuff to it to try to bring it to life in a new way um you know like I, I did a report in high school I had to do a report on graphic design because that was like the major I declared and I didn't really know what it was so my research paper was like researching what it was and so to talk about like what food labels were I grabbed part of the video was we grabbed a thing of like cottage cheese and show like zoomed in on the graphic design of the label and then zoomed out and I whacked it with like a, a golf club like there's no point for that but if I was going to be silly and fun and get a laugh in the report um I do I would and then I just look at my career now where like I'm making I'm making a living in a career out of making videos and telling stories and finding metaphor to bring the things in a different way. Like I just wrote a script for one of our bigger clients where they said, this is the most boring process heavy story we can think of. If you can make this interesting, um, we'll be impressed. And I was like, I'll take that as a challenge. I'm going to make this really interesting. So I like came up with these kind of goofy, but fun metaphor of, you know, this problem's like this. And I don't know that, that freedom and not having to ask permission to just look at things a different way and then to like do it and not wait for someone to like give you all the reasons not to, you know, cause oftentimes people can't, they can't picture what's in your head or they don't know, they haven't seen maybe what you want to do yet. So it's, I've just found it's easier just to show them. So I, yeah, that is so intriguing to me. And I love that. Thank you for sharing. You know, one thing that, comes to mind as I listen to you in one way is I think how much of my life um, ideologically, institutionally, interpersonally, systemically has re required in, in so many ways permission getting and how many avenues just 
like, don't get me wrong. I, I would say that in some ways I've kicked open a few doors, like I, for sure, you know, um, but how there was a deadbolt <laughs> and a lock and a door to kick through. And so I bring that up, not because you're, your ability to create is not fantastic, but also wanting to like be real as people are listening to say, some of us have, like, as a matter of fact, as children, we are instinctively exploratory. And we, this is why little kids put stuff in their mouth all the time. <laughs> this is why they were licking stuff and, and, and they're climbing stuff and they don't innately have a sense of danger um, and safety right? That's what parenting and caretaking and caregiving is for. And so, so many of us start out this way, like the capacity for exploration and, and expansion, but there are, whether it be directly through parenting and upbringing, or just these larger looming societal limitations, these, you know, these things, these barriers that can get in the way for some of us due to, you know, these marginalized labels that we're given and all that stuff. So just something I wanted to say, if anyone's listening and just being like, man, I always ask permission. Well, some of us are taught that because our survival was dependent upon asking for permission. I can't help one of my favorite movies is Shawshank Redemption. Uh, it's one of those that I don't know if I'll go like pull out the DVD, but if it's on TV, I'm going to watch it. <laughs> like There's no skipping Shawshank Redemption. Damn. And I just think about when Red is finally paroled, right? He's working in the grocery store and he's like, oh, boss, I got to go to the bathroom. He's like, you don't have to ask to go pee, you know, but the, the person who his frustration was built on the fact that he has been a free man, a free white man his whole life. So his annoyance that Red is asking did not take into account that he has yeah. spent the last, what, 50, 40 years asking permission for everything. So just something, you know, to add to this, this, um, this tech, add textually to this, um, what am I saying? Add context yeah. <laughs> and texture to this conversation. Oh yeah. There's, there's so much, there's a lot of privilege in my story, 100%. You know, even that the fact that I had access to a video camera to do that because my dad worked at the uh, school and could bring it home on the weekends. Well, that's know. true. Cause I was looking like, Brad, we, we about the same age. Let me tell you what, what, where you get a video camera from in the sixth and seventh grade. So thank yeah. you for answering that question. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I hear what you're saying and for sure. And it's, it's not, I haven't like kicked down every barrier. It's not like I never asked for permission, but the stuff that, that I have, I certainly, um, I recognize my privilege that I was able to do a lot of what I've done because of my uh, gender and my skin color for sure. Gotcha. So creating things and what I'm really intrigued by is I think it's one thing to think something up for yourself and then go like, how do I make this real? But so much of what you do is taking the things that are rumbling around in other people's heads, right? That trust me, I've had a number of ideas, yet I have not always had the language to convey those ideas in the way that I'm feeling them in my body and thinking of them in my head. And yet you have this, this gift of like pulling that out of people and then giving them back something that they're like, oh my goodness, yes, that's it. Not even yes, that's what I saw this is the concept and it's even better than I saw it. So any ideas besides just the natural gifting to who you are that you can tell us a little bit about that process and what that's like? Hmm. Yeah. I think I'm, uh, I've learned to, I've learned to listen well and to just follow my curiosity and hunches of like what I find interesting when someone's talking um so when they're when i'm with a client and they're like what you said they they have some some thoughts of what they want to do all i'm going to do is just ask them a million questions and i don't i usually don't go into um i don't go into it with a playbook of questions but i bet if i if i thought about it it's always going to come around to it's probably going to always loop back to campbell's hero's journey stuff we use that quite a bit for everything 
you know, we, we call it the boon journey for how we simplified it. But the simple uh, example is a hero sets out on a, on a journey in search of treasure. Um, usually it starts in search of an external treasure, but the internal treasure that they need to find is what's drawing them. Um, they're called to adventure to actually go on this adventure by a mentor um, who's been to the, the, the extraordinary world um, and sees potential in the hero to say, come on, you, you can do this. Um, and, and here's a sword that you're going to need to slay the dragon that's standing in the way of your treasure. So when I'm talking to someone, like what I'm always interested in is like, well, what, what ultimately were you really in search of? Or what are you currently in search of? What's, what's the treasure? What's the boon that you need to like bring back to your community to transform it? And what's standing in the way of and not letting you get it? What are the things both externally and internally? Um, and then what are the ways that that dragon can be slayed? So I think I just have that framework of seeing the world through stories, just a part of how I listen without even really thinking about it. So the questions I'll ask will we'll get at that stuff. But then I think I've just learned to like trust my instincts and my intuition of when something, when I hear something in a story that really sparkles, um, that I just get even more curious about that. And then generally that thing that makes that story really unique probably is then connected to this trend I've, I've been noticing that like, then I start just to, to synthesize and match things together of like, this is your deal. This is what I see happening in culture right now. This is, I just read this thing over here. And then I like mash it together and make like a, a new stew or something based on all of those different ingredients. What I love is how you talk about it. So like, yeah, you know, and how I know that there are going to be people like me, like, wow, that that's awesome. It reminded me of two things. One, it reminds me of a therapeutic journey. I heard you talking and I'm like, you know, that's what I do. <laughs> and like so many of those pieces is exactly it. What, what are you searching for? What do you think you're searching for? What yeah. are you actually searching for? You yeah. know, these, uh huh. And, and the barriers that you perceive as barriers, are those actually the barriers or there's something else? So I, I love that. And it also, I'm sure we can find this in so many stories, right? But it just definitely screamed the alchemist to me, which is one of those books that I had heard. So I probably have said this before, but in full transparency, I'm not a reader. I, I, I try, I get pages into something and I, those two pages become so rich with me. I get stuck on what is seemingly the most, the smallest detail. So there could be at any point in time, 10 books that I'm reading over the course of probably five years, because it's like, oh, that was good. And then I use it and I, and then I come back and like, did I read that? So anyway, I definitely am not claiming to be one of those people who are going to have walls and walls full of books, but I had heard and everyone's like, the alchemist, the alchemist, Jay read it. And he's like, you got to read this. And he knows me and reading. He's like, no, really, you got to read this one. And, and I did. And thankfully it was short, <laughs> still took me a while, but I'm like, oh my, it's, it, yeah, I just, it spoke to life. And mm -hmm. when I hear you talking about it, I'm like, yeah, that, that is, you know, the alchemist for sure. So when, when you're going through this process, how are people generally responding to your questions and to your curiosities? Do you find that people um, are kind of malleable and it's like, hey, let's go on this journey? Um, or do you find that sometimes people are kind of like, nope, that's not, you know, they're holding really tight to their perspective of it. I'm sure it kind of varies, but what's your experience with that? Yeah. Yeah. A lot of what comes to mind asking that question is we do a lot in my work. I do a lot of like video interviews, right? Someone comes in and they're going to be on camera and they're going to talk and they're not, nothing scripted, which I'm, I'm pulling the story out of them. And 9.9 .9 times out of 10, people come in super nervous, uncomfortable, don't want to do it. Um, nervous about saying the wrong thing, wish that I would give them all of the questions ahead of time so that they could be like scripted and prepared. And, do, do, do. and what my job is, is just to like make them forget that there's cameras involved and just feel like we're having a conversation and probably 
seven times out of 10, when the interview's over, they're just like, oh, that was, that was really fun. Like, that was really interesting, you know? And so I do think over the, over the years, and it's come from practice, you know, at Bespoken, we do a weekly uh, storytelling gathering we call Cuppa, where we, we get together um, as a large group to start. And then we split off into groups of three and we, we just tell and listen to each other's stories. And I, that has a large part of giving me the practice of learning how to just get curious and, and dive into people's stories and ask them the questions. Honestly, doing exactly what you're doing right here in this podcast of whatever stands out to me that's interesting, I just want to know more about. And then we just go deeper and deeper and deeper. And so the vast majority of times people really enjoy it because most folks aren't spending a ton of time like reflecting on stories of their life or digging deeper, you know what I mean? And so once they're given a chance to do that in a safe way with someone who's like, who they can feel is genuinely curious and delighted by what they're saying, it's a, it's a cool feeling, you know? And then I make sure to, to affirm those folks, you know, and to say like, you know, to tell them what I loved and tell them the gifts that I got out of the conversation. That's how we end every cup of sessions. We, the last five minutes are the gifts we received from each other in the conversation. And people, we just don't get a lot of that. You know what I mean? And so I think it's a win-win. I get the, I get the chance to dive into someone's story and figure out how to tell it. And then those folks get a chance to reflect and express themselves and hear why they're unique and special and just a, it's a good experience now there are bad ones you know what I mean there there are folks who I think maybe uh, don't really want to be there or they don't get what you're doing or maybe they haven't done a lot of work and reflecting is hard and so they just keep giving you surface level questions and so then it's my job to like figure out where's the chink in the armor of how do I how do I ask this in a way that you're going to actually get vulnerable with me? Um, then that just becomes like the challenge on my end. Well, I feel like if this didn't work out for you, which it clearly is working out for you, you might want to be a therapist because <laughs> everything you said, like you're sitting there and then you said what you're doing right now. I'm like, yeah, like who knew what we did overlap so much? That is exactly what I literally do on the podcast. Now I've been on other people's podcasts and it's so, you know, and, and for them, it's to each his own, I'm not even suggesting a better, good or bad, you know, right or wrong, but I'll get this list of questions and I'm like, I, I glance over, you know, and it's like, I'm not, you know, you're going to get what authentically comes out of my mouth at the time. And I don't send questions outside of, I'm going to ask you what's your labor of love. <laughs> Make sure you know your contact information and something interesting. But outside of that, that's exactly it. And I've had people who've come on the podcast and, you know, great. Now you would never know really who these people are, but some of them come and they're like, I, they, they tell me for months, like, I kind of want to do it, but I'm scared. I'm nervous, you know, all this stuff. And I'm like, you and I talk all the time that that's all we're doing. And so what I'm hearing, what I want to emphasize for people is, man, listening is one of the greatest gifts you can give a person. Yep. And it, it's one of those things that our culture has, I think, um, really minimized the importance of, the value of, and the, the strategic way to do it for a really long time. Many people are listening to respond. They're listening to find a way in there, you know, their listening is self-serving in some way, but there is something magical about authentically lending your undivided attention, your ear, your presence to a person to just witness them in their full self. And, and th there is magic there. Yeah. And, and so when people go to therapy, for example, if you have a good therapist, that's pretty much what they're doing. You know, we're not sitting there telling people what to do with their lives. We are listening because we hold so much wisdom as people. We've been conditioned in a lot of ways to get our answers from without. So then you come in a space with a person who's like, I'm, I, I, I can't and I won't answer that for you, but I will sit here with you completely present while you 
figure it out. And all the time they're trying to give me credit. I'm like, I didn't do that. <laughs> you did. Like literally you did that work. And so I, to hear you say that, and then you talk about the cup experiences, which I have been invited to. And I think the first hangup was that they happened early in the morning. <laughs> and Shonda just is not at that stage her life right now, where early in the morning things are likely to happen. However, it sounded like this amazingly delightful utopia that you're creating and having that space is amazing. So I love that. Yeah. I mean, we started it, um, Joey Taylor and I, he's the director of of Bespoken and does all the stuff in the schools and he's a master at, at holding space. And we created it because we felt we wanted this like a weekly Sabbath of sorts, um, a, a chance to just uh, remember and discover who we are. And what we were finding is that we were naturally doing that. And even my, by myself before that, what I was doing, you know, in the before times, before COVID years ago, uh, I would just schedule coffee meetings with people who I thought would be interesting conversations. And We'd get coffee and I would just ask them questions and we would talk. And a couple of times at the end, people were just like, so is what, you know, almost like, what's the point of this? And I was like, this, this is the point, like this connection. So we started Cuppa as just wanting the magic that happens from listening, from being seen and known um, that comes through storytelling. That's what we wanted to create just on a weekly basis. And what's been the fruit of that has been how much better I've gotten in my professional life because of how well I've learned to listen in this weekly practice. You know what I mean? And I think I find, I teach a storytelling workshop um, and people want, I think it's the American way where we just want to be good at something instantly. You know, give me the tips, tricks and hacks to getting good at something. And the reality is to be a good storyteller, you got to be a great listener and to, to do both of them, you just have to practice all the time. And most of us aren't, right? Like we're, we're, we're waiting to speak. We're waiting to tell our side of the story more than we are really just listening because in our context, what you're listening for is that moment that just really feels like a giant gift and worth waking up at eight o'clock in the morning to then at the end when you get to tell someone that and they get to then be seen by you like that's where that's transcendent and yeah and all of that came from the live shows the storytelling shows that we were doing at the spoken where we would get a handful of storytellers you know you told a story one time on stage but what we realized early on was the stories coming from the stage are great you know and people feel seen and known and less alone by hearing someone else's story but then when you take it in the next step further and you devote the last half of the show to breaking people up into smaller groups to do their own storytelling and story listening in a smaller context that's when the room just vibrates with transcendence Um, and so we just keep trying to find ways to make that that room vibration happen uh, whether it's virtually or or in person yeah so let's let's turn our attention specifically to talk about bespoken live um, and some of the amazing things they uh, has done, it's still doing, will do. Um, I have the, the, the honor and privilege to intersect with Bespoken in a, a few different ways. And it has been such a life-giving, you know, experience, you know, to the point you were saying, like, the listening is two-part. I think it's, it's two sides of that. It's the giving of yourself. And it's the receiving mm-hmm. of others. And so many of us, for many reasons that I will say are valid, but we're largely unaware of, puts us in one of those positions that, you know, either we're the person that um, is willing to receive of others and their story and sit and listen and, and be as genuine as possible, but feel in some way that our story is inadequate. It's not enough. It's too small. The number of people I've had to tell me I don't have a story and, and, and the people who tell me that in, in this experience I'm talking about are all older. This generation of people who have survived so much, I mean, so much and to go, 
I don't have a story. It breaks my heart. One of those people was my mother-in-law. Um, back in 2018, she was re-diagnosed with cancer. And what the diagnosis gave us was intentionality in a way that we had not been intentional before. And so when this diagnosis came and it was a stage four metastasized diagnosis, what I was determined to do was be as intentional with time as possible. And I just remembered this moment um, around the holidays and she was writing her obituary, which I'm all for. And I have written mine to be updated with updates, but for the most part, I need nobody getting it wrong. I got the details. Let me go ahead and take care of that for you. And if she said that, you know, some people were like, ah, you know, whatever, that's morbid. Or she just wants to be in control. I was like, no, that's genius. So as she was talking about it and she said, I don't want anyone to miss anything or something like that. I said, you know what, mom, you're right. I don't want to miss anything. And so I asked her permission to collect her oral history. And so over the course of six separate sessions, her and I sat down together. I just put this microphone in between us. And I, I, the only thing I wanted was to know her story and to know about the things that, you know, she never got to talking about because she was one of the people who said, well, I don't really have a story. Six sessions. And I am just I want to know more. Now, part of it is I wanted my grandchildren, my children who were too young, who, you know, to remember her in that way, to have not just her story, but her voice, have her voice telling her story. And it was one of the most amazing experiences. And then I had a friend whose mom was diagnosed with a stage four cancer diagnosis last year. And I said, can I take her oral history? in part because I just want to know. And one thing that I hear at least 30 times a week, no lie, is that's a good question. <laughs> it's like the default response that people say to me. I'm gonna hear it at least 30 times a week. Yeah. That's a good question. And I think that's so much of what life is. It's just good questions. Mm -hmm. Now there are some of us on the other side that we have been unseen, unheard, or gotten our value from being seen and heard wherever you fall on that spectrum so much that we are so eager to tell our story, right? And we, we, we have so much. I'm one of those people, man, my story can't be confined to just the pages of some book that I'm still trying to write. And I'll know, man, I just, I'm never going to run out of material to tell you about. But the, I think the key, like what Kappa is doing it is bringing people into the practice. It's so important to understand that it's a practice of being on both sides. Yeah. Valuing your story enough to tell it, valuing someone else's story enough to receive it. And yeah. oh, just magical. Bespoken Live. Tell us a little bit about like generally what it is. And let's just talk about some of the awesome things that it, that we've collaborated on and other things that you've done. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we started, um, we're, we're, this is our sixth year. Uh, it'll be six years in August. And we started just thinking we were going to do live shows, storytelling gatherings, right? We had, we started because a lot of us who um, started this creative agency, uh, Rebel Pilgrim, we liked telling stories for clients, but we also just loved telling stories with our friends. And we had talented friends who could make people laugh and cry and could play music. And so we would just rent out stages in Cincinnati and, and we started just picking a four letter word and everybody would tell different stories around that four letter word. And um, the first or second show, like, I just said to somebody like this, the way this feels like something other is happening and someone with language is like, that, that's transcendence. And so we're just like, all right, well, let's start a nonprofit. And our mission is going to be, we're going to create transcendent entertainment. And I loved how open-ended that was, you know, that it, to me, the transcendent was that there was going to be something mysterious that we couldn't quite understand. And we didn't, 
you can give that, you can call that God, you can call that the universe, you can call that science, whatever you want to call it. Um, I don't really care. I don't have a word for it other than something mysterious happens in a room when people share stories, when they feel seen and known, when they feel a sense of belonging. Um, and then through the years, I feel like that's just what I've come to what I've come to believe is that everything always comes back to belonging. And I'm sure there's way people, people way smarter than I that like know the why and have theories about it. I just haven't done that reading, but when that's just, I see everything through belonging now, even like I watched the QAnon documentary on, on HBO and I was just like, oh, this is, this is just folks who wanted to belong to something. That's what's happening here. They just needed to belong. They didn't, here comes something that they can once we feel that sense of belonging, man, we'll, we'll do a lot of things to keep feeling that way, right? So that the evolution of Bespoken was, you know, doing these live shows and then just kind of keep simplifying, simplifying, simplifying to figuring out what it's actually about. And what it became about was really the smaller group aspect of the show of splitting up into triads. You know, I'm a Peter Block uh, devotee and you know, he talks about triads and the power of sitting with your knees eight inches apart and facing each other. Um, and man, there's nothing, there's nothing better than that. And so we've then just found different ways for, for that transcendence to happen combined with storytelling and story listening in different ways. And so, you know, one of the things I'm still really, really proud of is the workshop that we created together the story and process, the trauma-informed um, storytelling workshop that came about because uh, I walked out of um, a building onto Fifth Street right as the fifth, fifth, third shooting ended. And I saw the woman who got shot 11 or 12 times walking out and sitting down on a flagpole with, you know, I could see the, the wounds on her on her shirt um and and knowing from my from sarah buffy that that i needed to process that that was a traumatic experience of not trying to be like tough and brave about it and say like well i, I wasn't in there and it wasn't that bad like to to name that that what i witnessed was traumatic and that i needed to process that with a safe group of people because if i didn't that gets that trauma gets lodged in your body and you know this is all your expertise. But I was glad that I just had that awareness to do that. And then that just led to, you know, it was in the midst of, it felt like there were shootings every other week and just like everybody saying like, what can I do about it? And so then we teamed up with you and we said, what can we do about this? Like, could we create, you know, there's all that science out there that when we can process our trauma through a narrative structure, that we can start to experience healing. And so how do we do something that combines what we've learned at Bespoken of how to make people feel safe and heard and like they belong uh, and combine that with what, what you know about trauma and can we create a safe place for people to start to heal? You know, And I love that phrase, that story and process where we're not saying this workshop's gonna magically make it okay, but it is gonna give you a tool that through your through your journey and through that story in process, you'll have something that you can keep coming back to that can can help you with that healing. So yeah, I I have the the honor, the privilege, the blessing to be connected to so many amazing, awesome people, experiences, and offerings. And story and process is definitely one of them this idea of, and, and story is just so powerful. It, it, it is, story is powerful um, in both receiving and giving. And my understanding of how trauma impacts the brain, the body, and the whole experience, putting those things together just seems like, duh, right? So we, we put those together and we have had some amazing experiences. Um, and so, you know, just putting it out there, it's still there. You know, people, if you are saying like, you know, we, we specifically are here for people, groups of people who want to bring us in to help them 
go through a story to, to metabolize and process through some of that trauma, trauma. Sometimes we do it thematically because of the origin of this process. We started specifically around gun violence. Um, people who were working in that. And here's the interesting thing you mentioned, Sarah Buffy. I was thinking about talking about her. I always call her my great connector because when I think about so many people and places and experiences I'm connected to, Sarah Buffy's in there somewhere. And interestingly, you know, she connected me with you originally just because I had this desire to do a TEDx, right? You know, like I'm, I'm going to do a TEDx and I'm glad I didn't when I wanted to, because who I am and, and what I would say now, not that what I would have said then is bad, but anyway, I'm like, mm, that, yeah, this is, this is fine. But she's like, well, it's not the same, but let me, let me connect you with, that's her friend. Let me connect you with. So she connected me with Brad and, you know, it was amazing. And you did the, the storytelling workshop with me. And, you know, we did uh, that downtown Cincinnati. Then she ended up connecting when, when this happened, I did a lot of work with uh, Sandy Hook Promise. So I had kind of, you know, Sarah does, she's my trauma sister. So she had that, but I had kind of this gun violence connection and that was her way of putting us together. And I just appreciate having a connector in my life that sometimes she'll just send an email, like y'all need to know each other. <laughs> That's it. And you're like, so then you start meeting, like, I don't know exactly why, but I trust her. And so I love that we got connected in that way, um, story and process. And one of my favorite actually is when we did the the storytelling around body. Yeah. Was the four-letter word. And that was just a cathartic experience for me to sit with, and I'm a person that reflects a lot, but to sit with this word using this format to get to this point it was it was it was so good and and I knew that as I was telling that story aspects of it were connecting with every single person in that room they didn't have to have my body they didn't have to have the experiences that my body had but there was just something about a, a well-crafted story that can hold a space and then like you said we wanted to try ads yeah like and then this, this magic that us three storytellers kind of put in the air settled and just became this electrifying, very alive, transcendent experience. So good. Yeah. Yeah. We, uh, that was a great night. Um, unbelievable night. And what you tell that story reminds me of another live show that we did with, um, the smaller part of the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra. And they, we did it where, they would play some music and then a storyteller would maybe tell a story and then we would get in triads and we would talk. And, but the best part of the show was they played this piece of music and then there was no accompanying story with it. It was just tell a story based on what that story made you feel. Um, and my mom, she was there in the audience and she told me afterwards, she's like, that music, what that brought to mind was this, it was the last moment I saw my mom before she passed away, when she, I think my mom was 12 when her mom died of uh, lung cancer. And the story, the imagery that came back because of this music was seeing her mom getting wheeled away um, into an ambulance that last, that last uh, day. And then my friend Ryan came up to me afterwards and shared with me the story that I saw. It was the last moment that my, this was my last day with my mom before she passed away. And I remember, and he told the story. And I heard that like three other times that people, and what was nuts was the person, the main like leader of the music group, he got up and told the story afterwards, after everybody had shared their stories and said, this piece of music, the the composer wrote it um, to depict the last moment he saw his friend before his friend died. And I was just like, <clears throat> like blew my mind. Like, what is that? How can a piece of music tap into it? It just, it totally cooked my grits. I mean, I, I couldn't even afford it. And so then that set, that set me on like a, a journey to start to play around with like, what could we do if you tap into like other senses, like the sense mm. of smell, you know, the sense of taste, like could that spark stories and the, the possibilities are, are endless, but the power of it always, always, always comes back to people feeling less alone, 
feeling like they're a part of something, you know, like that. That's why the room shakes. And that, that is so powerful. Uh, the senses are amazing. And the sense of belonging, it's so important. You've mentioned it a few times and, and we are created human beings. We are social animals who have to feel belonging for survival. And those of us who are like, I don't need nobody, this isn't judgment. Your life experience has just taught you that belonging can be unsafe. Mm -hmm. It is safer to be by yourself and fend for yourself than it is to be connected to others. And those of us who have experienced horrific abuse, neglect, and shaming, othering, discrimination, all of these things, it, it registers in our body that way. So it's not that you're defective if you say, I don't need anyone. It's just that unfortunately, belonging has been hijacked by your sense of survival. And what I really appreciate about storytelling is it does help us to belong. You being able to watch that documentary and see that it's a sense of belonging. I talk about the sense of belonging all the time. It's one of the top five resilience factors that people who overcome their trauma and don't go on to recreate it have a sense of belonging. And we as people have this in ways that we sometimes, we neglect it. We don't recognize that that's what it is, but those who don't have it recognize they don't have it. So an example is, you know, I've lived in Cincinnati for, it'll be 17 years next month. Um, I moved here the year of the cicadas and hey, they're coming back. So, um, and interestingly, you know, coming from Michigan, a proud grad and alum of the University of Michigan, I utilize that in trainings to talk about a sense of belonging. Because here in Ohio, I talk about Michigan and inevitably, I'm going to get the, you know, this whole thing. And I said, yes, like I, I'm, I was waiting on it. Right. And if half of the room had something to say about it, and then I say, do me a favor, just indulge me here. Stand up if you attended or graduated from Ohio State. And then you get maybe 10%, maybe, right? Right. And, and then I go on to say, so you don't have to have even step foot on that campus to feel like you're a Buckeye. Like that sense of belonging, it's yeah. behind our bumper stickers and our license plate customization. It's behind so much not just signaling to them, whoever they are, that this is my identity, but really it's ultimately to signal to those who share in that belonging that you're there. So that yeah. then when they see that, I mean, how many times have you traveled out of town and you saw a license plate from a state you're from and there was a part of you that just wanted to like hunk your horn and wave, you know, you're, right. you're out in Arizona and you see an Ohio license plate, there's a part of you that's like, oh my goodness, right? Yeah. Then you yeah. find out that you grew up on the west side and they grew up on the east side and, and growing up, y'all didn't want nothing to do with each other. But the further you get away, you realize what well, doesn't matter what part of town you grew up on. We're both from Ohio. You travel overseas. This Michigan-Ohio rivalry doesn't mean anything if you're somewhere on the continent of Africa or you're somewhere and then you see somebody like you're from this, you're American, right? This sense of belonging, it, it's so deep. It runs so deep that when we begin to understand our visceral and inherent need for belonging, we begin to allow ourselves to belong somewhere and invite others into our belonging. And I totally believe that is so much of what the work you're doing, Brad, and storytelling is doing. And then another thing I wanted to share is um, Sarah Buffy and I and um, work through this cohort, but the work of um, a lot of our mentor, Mary Vicario, trauma-informed biographical timelines, right? It's where we usually, um, in a lot of circumstances, it is the person, the focused person is someone who's involved in multiple systems. It's someone who people have thrown their hands up and they go, there's just nothing we can do. We've tried everything and they're just not and blah, 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 right? <laughs> so we get all the people we can who are involved in this person's life together. Put a big old piece of paper on the wall with a line down the, the black line down the middle. And we start in utero 
which is where the bio the timeline starts for me it starts well before that generations before that because we're talking about intergenerational historical trauma but everything that we can name that has been resilient building and helpful to that person we put above the line in their favorite color and things that have been challenging and traumatic we put below the line in red and interestingly people who come to these meetings have data oh well their file says oh when they were this age you know so they have all this data all these dates and all of these things that have happened but what they usually don't have and when we're helping people to become timeline facilitators what i tell them all the time is your job is to be a master storyteller because everyone who comes into that meeting is looking at that person as if they are nothing but a whole bunch of data points and bad behavior and what we do is we tell their story with the dignity and the reverence and the compassion that it deserves. Mm -hmm. And when you start to do that, you watch people's perspective. You can physically see a change in their bodies. Mm -hmm. Once you understand that what comes out of a person makes absolute sense when you understand what went into them. And we focus all of our interventions around what's coming out of them instead of focusing our compassion and curiosity around what went into them. Now imagine that process for yourself. Imagine if you stopped shaming yourself for not doing the thing you wanna do or continuing to do the thing you wish you could stop and all of that. And you actually moved into compassion and curiosity of your own story. If you stopped just being a set of data points it revolutionizes the relationship we have with ourselves. And so when I hear about Kappa, when I hear about Bespoken Live, the work you're doing, that's what I hear. I hear space being created for people to revolutionize how they engage with themselves and others. And I just think it's amazing. Mm, I love that. Compassion and curiosity. Yeah, that's great. That's really good. So Brad. If people are listening and they are like, I want to get up early in the morning, it's probably not that early. I know I try to make it seem like it's five o'clock. It's not like five o'clock in the morning, yeah. but whether they're interested in the cup of experience or they want to know more about Bespoken Live or they're like, hey, I got this thing rumbling around in my head and it sounds like you might know how to help me make this thing a thing. How can yep. people get in touch with you and find you? Yep. So I um, bespokenlive.org kind of holds everything. You can. Um, you can find out about Cuppa there. You can, there's a link to Story and Process. Story and Process has its own website, storyandprocess.com. Um, it points you towards the Boone Reflections. That also has its own URL, boonreflections.com. If you're just wanting to go on a reflection journey to help you get your idea out in the world. Um, and yeah, the link to 8 a.m. on Wednesdays, Cuppa, come join us anytime. It's, it's real. It's so simple. I know it's scary to come into a, a, a virtual setting, but there's never been anybody who has regretted waking up and, and coming to it. So, and if you want to just hear more about it, you can just email me. It's brad at bespokenlive.org. Um, and finally, friend, I want to close out like I do with all of my guests and ask if you would share an interesting, fun, or little known fact about yourself. Hmm. Um, I don't know if it's interesting, but, uh, I was, I was born with two different sized pupils, which sometimes can be a, a sign of like concussion. And there's a story of, of my great grandma babysat one night and I like slipped on the concrete of our carport and bonked my head. And she was a nurse. And when she saw my two eyes, she thought that I had a concussion. And she was really nervous to tell, um, my mom about it. And I was like fretting for when my parents came home and my mom was just like, ah, no, his pupils are just different sizes. And it doesn't really affect me, although I'm, a ter I'm terrible at parking in a spot because I think it's like a depth perception thing. At least that's what I'm blaming it on. The reason I can't get square in the middle of a parking spot ever is uh, it's not my fault. I was born this way. I would go ahead and say that's interesting. <laughs> so thank you for sharing. Fred, your time 
um, means so much to me. Thank you for joining me and sharing yourself and part of your story with me and my listeners. Oh, my pleasure. Love chatting with you. Yes, it's great. I want to give a special shout out to Trey Angel, who does all of the music for the Labors of Love podcast, to my producer, Jay Sugg from Instant Classic Media, and of course, to you, my guest. I never take for granted that you take time to listen. If you have suggestions for content or guests, please reach out at our website, www.thelaborsoflove.com. We are on all the major social media outlets. Please, if you haven't already, head over to Instagram to our new page dedicated specifically for the podcast, the underscore LOL underscore pod. And if you haven't, go ahead and give us that five-star rating, write us a review and share with your friends and your loved ones. Until we connect again, you all be well.